He loved food and he loved wine so much that whenever he and his buddies were at a wedding banquet, they would run out of booze. He was generous of spirit, though, and thankfully he was always ready and happy to replenish the supply. He never had a shortage of dinner party invitations, and he was always ready to prepare a feast for both friends and strangers alike. He loved to eat. He loved to party. He loved to have long dinners with old friends. He always loved the people he ate with, even more than he loved all of that. His name, of course, is Jesus. It's so good to be back here at Tyndale with you. Thank you, Janet, for your warm and generous words. When George Sweetman, my good friend, my good, very old friend, I was asked me to come and asked me to speak on the spiritual practice of hospitality, I was at once delighted and also terrified. To speak on hospitality suggests you know something about it. And Janet's words were very generous. We, we, we try, I try, to live hospitably. But how hospitable are we really? I was delighted he asked me to speak on this spiritual practice because of the fact that I think that we need to renew our thinking. I think we need to sharpen our thinking around the subject of hospitality. Our culture confuses us and distracts us. Hospitality, contrary to popular belief, cannot be captured on a Pinterest board. Hospitality is a word that is so broad and so deep that it is not just soul-shaping, but it's soul-making. What do I mean by that? Well, what does Jesus say on the subject? He's very clear. The Pharisees lorded over people, and they lived their lives by rule after rule after rule, and they were clear and concise in their intentional exclusion. Jesus was the opposite. Jesus... He showed us how to live by kindness and inclusion. But he didn't just demonstrate hospitality. He embodied it. He was hospitality. And when we think about hospitality, we tend to think one way or another. We tend to think either entertaining the stranger, being kind to the stranger and the foreigner, or we focus all of our attention entirely on the nurture of the fellowship of believers. The problem with that is that Jesus, in fact, calls us to both. He practiced both. He spent, I would almost say, equal amounts of time doing both. Traveling with his disciples from place to place, Jesus would have shared plenty of meals with his friends. He would have had long meals and even longer conversations, probably over open fire that would last well into the night. He probably had quick and easy meals along the way that would be equivalent to this generation's Instagrammed food truck culture. Jesus went to dinner parties with his friends. He visited with his friends. But he also reclined and had dinners and conversation and shared meals with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. I did a teaching series once that I called Dinners with Jesus. I really wanted to call it Dinner with Sinners, but I didn't think my congregation was ready for that kind of cheekiness at the time. But I digress. 
I believe that a significant marker of our spiritual formation is actually revealed around our heart and our attitude toward hospitality. Spiritual disciplines, uh, some of which you've been talking about over the last several chapels, spiritual disciplines like Sabbath keeping and holy reading and prayer are absolutely soul shapers. And as I said earlier, I believe that hospitality is a little bit different because it is a soul shaper, but it is also a soul maker. What do I mean by that? Well, is entertaining and throwing fancy dinner parties hospitality? It can be. It's a nice start. Why not? But the problem with entertaining is it tends to be more about impressing people with your hosting savvy, throwing fancy dinner parties and showing off what you can do and what you want others to see about you most. Entertaining is what you do after you've cleaned up and shoved everything under the bed and into the closet and maybe taken a shower, yeah? That's entertaining. But hospitality is not just a perfect moment in time. Hospitality is a welcoming spirit, an invitation into your heart and into your home, sweatpants and all. I think that hospitality is being ready to boldly invite Jesus into conversations with strangers and with friends. I bring up Jesus in church all the time at the risk of being awkward. I name drop Jesus with my friends and family members who aren't yet believers. When I'm chatting in line at Tim Hortons, when I invite neighbors over for coffee, I find ways to begin sentences with, that reminds me of something funny that happened at church this past weekend. And then usually I share an anecdote completely unrelated. Why? Am I being deceptive? I am not. I want people to know how excellent, how loving, how perfect, and how interesting my Lord and Savior Jesus is. I want them to know the Jesus I know. I don't want to be aggressive, and I don't want to be rude, and I don't want to be imposing. But if anybody gives me the palest green light, friends, I will go on and on and on. Many have said, and I agree, that hospitality is fundamentally missional evangelism. I think more and more what we're going to find is that evangelism will look more like hospitality. I think we must return to it. We're immersed in a culture that is growing increasingly selfish. My stuff, my kingdom, at my convenience, me first. When we're asked to form a circle with a group of people, we instinctively hold hands and face inward, not outward. We want to be generous, so we save, and we save in order to be generous, but we're mostly generous to ourselves. We save for our own pleasures and our own delights. We, we want to love our neighbors, but that would mean getting out of our pajamas and tearing away from our Netflix and sharing our specialty popcorn that came from that pop-up shop that we waited two hours for, that they make in limited batches, with our neighbors. We, we want to care about winning souls for Christ, but we are not inclined toward the stranger as we ought to be. We barely notice the foreigner. We barely notice the widowed or the orphaned in our midst. We want to be hospitable, yeah? But we 
want to be hospitable on our terms. We have all kinds of excuses not to be. How many times have I heard people say things like, when I have my own place, when I have a bigger place, when I get a job and I'm more financially secure, I can be more generous, when I have a steadier income, when I have more time, when I'm retired, I'll be more hospitable. Half of you are 20 years old. That's going to take a long time. You're not going to be hospitable for a long time if that's your attitude towards hospitality. Friends, do not wait. Those are terrifying words of Jesus when he says, depart from me. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and I was in prison and you did not visit me. Friends, it doesn't matter how busy we are. It doesn't matter how much or how little money we have. Whether you live in the smallest apartment or in residence or a 4,000 square foot home, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if your best offering is peanut butter and jelly or filet mignon. It doesn't matter. Hospitality is always first an invitation to the heart and the rest are merely details. Hospitality needs to be who we are before it's what we do. Both are equally important. Do you know what hospitality is? Is It's actually looking at someone and seeing them, seeing truly who they are, and allowing yourself to be seen as well. Hospitality can begin as a kind smile or a conversation anywhere, but I believe it's most effective when it's an invitation to the table for a shared meal or even just a snack, an invitation to share a story and have stories shared, an invitation to be genuine in relationship, an invitation that makes strangers friends and friends family? Have you ever noticed that when you break bread with somebody, it's probably the most effective way of getting into a deeper relationship with them? Shared table is shared life. Have you ever thought about the foods that you love most? They're usually connected to experiences you've had with people. You, you taste something familiar and you say, oh, this reminds me of the time. Have you ever had that experience? You know, friends, there are foods that I eat that I immediately associate with specific people. Foods remind me of, of times and places. It reminds me of relationships. And I, I, I get excited. I get excited when I introduce somebody to a food maybe from my childhood, from my origins, from my culture. Do you know, I, I grew up having dim sum most weekends with my grandmother, my late grandmother. And to this day, whenever I go to a Chinese restaurant, I assess the dim sum the way my grandmother did. I'm very critical. Some of you are saying, what is dim sum? Well, uh, small shared dishes. Chinese um, breakfast tapas is what dim sum is. Shared plates, shared experiences. As an adult, I cannot ever have dim sum without thinking about my grandmother. I cannot have dim sum without thinking how she would be shocked at how many Chinese people are in the city. <laughs> when I was little, there was only the Chinatown down at Dundas. And some of you are thinking, where's Dundas? Where's that? <laughs> well, now Chinatown is everywhere. We're everywhere, friends. It's just the reality. <laughs> but we would sometimes make dim sum at home. 
And we would spend hours and hours and hours making these little savory dumplings until our, our hands were numb and our fingers were stiff and sore. And we would lay out all our food and, and the preparation and, and the steaming and the eating. I learned more about my grandmother and her history in those moments than in every other moment combined. You see, sometimes we would start breakfast and have dim sum, and we would just talk for hours and hours and hours, and then it would be lunchtime, and well, obviously then we would just have lunch. And the meal and the conversation would extend further. The problem is, you see, the table is at risk of getting lost in our culture. Research shows that years ago, 50 years ago at least, the average family dinner lasted 90 minutes. And now the average family meal lasts about 12. Most households, and by household, I don't just mean families we were born into, but the families we've chosen. Most households don't even average eating together once a week at a table on purpose. I've observed with my very own eyes people taking more time to photograph their meal than the time it takes to eat it. Taking more time to make sure the lighting is right and the angle is good than the actual conversations with the people that they're eating with. And, and yes, I'm talking about many of you. Is it, is it wrong to enjoy our food? It's not wrong to enjoy our food. But if the table establishes family bonds, then what happens if we lose the table? We're losing the table. You see, Jesus rewrote the definition of family when he traveled and he journeyed through life with his disciples, sharing meal after meal. When he fed the 5,000, they became his family. When he prepared breakfast on the beach for his disciples, he reminded them that they belonged to him and that they belonged to each other. He invited friends and strangers constantly. You know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, who did he eat with? Not the family he was born into, but the family he chose. And as he ate with them, he said, whenever you do this, which means he expected us to do it again and again and often, he said, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. You see, it wasn't the space that defined family. It was the table that you were invited to. Friends, every time we invite someone to the table, 